Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's podcast of Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack, founder and CEO at Vandenack Weaver Trulson. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about legal and tax issues, trusts and estates, business succession and exit planning, legal technology, law practice management, and leadership and well-being. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, and Carson Private Client. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. Technology has become an essential part of our daily lives. However, not all fields have embraced technology. Lawyers, especially estate planning attorneys, need to stay up to date with specific laws and any issues affecting taxes and wealth preservation. Implementing an automated drafting system can help lawyers spend more time with their clients and less time doing back office tasks. Estate planners and law professionals turn to Interactive Legal as their main resource for the latest planning strategies. Interactive Legal provides the most comprehensive productivity system on the market with an easy-to-use document drafting system, extensive continuing education, thought-provoking discussion forums, and more. With Interactive Legal, attorneys get to spend more time with their clients. It's time to connect, collaborate, and create. To learn more about Interactive Legal, visit interactivelegal.com. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, my guest is Stacy Neusendorfer. Stacy is a senior lead advisor with Foster Group. She has significant experience both in estate planning and as an attorney and in wealth management. Stacy has been on previous episodes with me. In one episode, we discussed issues specific to physicians in estate planning, and in another, we discussed common issues in coordinating financial products with estate planning. Since we released those episodes, we've had a change to what we call the SECURE Act, SECURE Act 2.0, and it's one of the things that Stacy is very knowledgeable about, so I asked her to join me again to talk about SECURE 2.0. Thanks for joining me today, Stacy. Thank you for having me, Mary. So what exactly do we mean when we refer to SECURE 2.0? So SECURE 2.0 was essentially an addition to the original SECURE Act that was enacted at the end of 2019. SECURE 2.0 was enacted on December 29, 
2022, so the end of last year, and it includes additional provisions to help people who are currently or near retirement. So in fairness, over the last several years, we've had quite a bit of changes in the retirement planning arena, and the SECURE Act is one of them, but not only did we have SECURE Act, I don't think we're really calling it 1.0, but the SECURE Act. It was just SECURE. And then we had a whole bunch of regulations, and then we had revised regulations and more regulations, and now we have SECURE Act 2.0. So it's been more than fun. They're not putting us out of business relative to dealing with retirement planning issues at this pace. And so we want to talk a little bit more in more detail about what that is and what it means today. So one of the things that was affected with SECURE 2.0 was the required minimum distribution So can you just explain uh, what the required minimum distribution is and what how SECURE Act 2.0 has changed the rules regarding the same? Absolutely. Um, Required minimum distribution relates to the money that a person is required to take from their pre-tax accounts when they reach a certain age. Um, With a traditional retirement plan like a 401k, generally you put that money in on a pre-tax basis and the government lets you allow that money to grow tax-deferred, but sooner or later the tax man comes calling. So um, I've been you know, working in financial planning for about 20 years, and for as long as I can remember, the required minimum distribution age was 70 and a half. However, that changed with SECURE passed in 2019, um, in 2019, Secure Act moved the age up to 72. For 72, not 72 and a half. No, just 72. So we actually got rid of that half it's year It's good to thing. get rid of the half. It, that, that clears up some confusion for people. Uh, so it went up to 72 for anyone who was not already in RMD status, meaning they hadn't begun taking distributions. Um, then... At the end of last year, Secure 2.0 was passed, and it again moved the age. Um, And so now it is either 73 or 75, depending upon when you were born. If you were born between 1951 and 1959, your new age to start taking distributions is 73. For anyone who was born in 1960 or later, uh, that RMD age now begins at age 75. So the bottom line, Stacey, is that you can defer the date at which you have to start taking amounts out of your IRAs or qualified plans. Correct. Is that always a good idea? Well, you know, while at first blush, it might seem like a great idea, especially because people are, you know, working beyond that traditional sort of 65 retirement age. Um, It may not be such a great idea if you are a person who was a high earner, Um, throughout a good portion of your career, and you have deferred quite a bit of money into those qualified accounts. Um, Because if you allow this money to continue to grow, you're going to, in theory, get um, growth and compounding on that. So when you reach your magic age, whether it's 73 or 75, you may find that the size of the distribution you take is well into the six figures. Um, And for most people, the idea of deferring that money during their working years was that you would be in a lower tax bracket. Um, So that could be a problem because it may affect your, you know, your earned income and, and money coming out of a traditional 
um, 401k or IRA that has never been taxed is treated as ordinary income. And when you're receiving Social Security, that's ordinary income. And for most people, it can affect um, not only the taxes you pay on your Social Security, but moreover your Medicare premiums and may cause you to be um, subject to those higher Medicare premium uh, rates as well as sort of that um, net investment income tax that's out there. So some All those lovely taxes that we keep adding on. (laughs) Yes. Um, So some people might want to consider actually taking money from their IRAs earlier. As long as you're age 59 and a half, you can take money out without penalty. And in fact, I've advised some people recently that they really should consider um, trying to smooth out that money that they're going to take in those retirement years to avoid huge tax bills. The other thing to consider is uh, when the SECURE Act was passed in 2019, it changed the way someone who inherits an IRA could take those payments. It used to be that you could do what was called a stretch IRA, and the beneficiary could spread the payments over their lifetime. But with SECURE Act, that changed for most beneficiaries, so anyone who was a non-spousal beneficiary was now subject to a 10-year period to deplete the IRA. And for a lot of people, when you're inheriting an IRA, you're probably getting it from a parent or someone who is, you know, maybe 30 years older than you. And usually the recipient is in their high earning years. So when you only have 10 years to deplete those assets and you're already in one of the higher tax brackets, it can really, you know, upset your actual income in your checkbook versus what's going you know, to the IRS. And another difference between those inherited IRAs and not is that in the IRAs that, or while it's my IRA, there's asset protection that's built in. The inherited IRA, depending on the state of the beneficiary, may not have the asset protection. That's where some of the trust options come into play. We decided we weren't going to cover the trust beneficiaries today because that'll be be beyond the scope of the time that we have for this episode, but we're going to talk about those on another day. Well, that's there's another change that was made by Secure Act 2.0 related to the required minimum distributions for Roth. What's that change? So um, if you have a regular Roth that you set up yourself, you actually did not have to take distributions um, in retirement. However, people who had the benefit of a Roth through an employer-sponsored plan um, were able to defer, say if it was a Roth 401k, you could defer much more money just like you could in a regular 401k plan than you could in, say, setting up a Roth yourself. But when you separated service from that employer, um, if you kept the money there, you had to take distributions from the Roth 401k, which kind of made you give up one of the benefits of having a Roth. So with SECURE Act, they kind of cleaned this up a little bit. And so now employees um, who leave their money in employer, say Roth 401ks, are no longer required to take distributions from those. This is Mary Vandenack, the host of Legal Visionaries. I want to share some information today about one of our sponsors, Collaborative Planning Group. Collaborative Planning Group is an organization that consults with clients in regard to life insurance, long-term care, and disability. I have personally had the opportunity to work with Erica Moorhead 
the founder, president, and CEO of Collaborative Planning. I can personally vouch for the knowledge, expertise, and client focus of the organization. Collaborative Planning has expertise and a great process to create solutions, implement strategies, and review plans annually to give their clients peace of mind. An important aspect of working with Collaborative Planning is their true collaboration with other professionals, including financial advisors, attorneys, and CPAs, to ensure that clients have their full team and that all products have a purpose and align with the objectives of the client. Collaborative Planning Group provides honest, transparent, quality life, disability, and long-term care insurance plans that will be there when you need them. Visit collaborativeplanninggroup.com today to learn more. And another change is related to the catch-up contributions. Do you want to describe that? Um, sure, absolutely. So every year, as, far, as long as I can remember, um, there's usually sort of an adjustment to the amount of money people can contribute um, to either like their retirement plans or say an IRA. Um, so for 2023, contribution limits uh, for people who are 50, over 50, have increased an additional $7,500. So the limit for anyone under 50 is $22,500 that you can defer through an employer plan. But if you're over 50, you can add an additional $7,500 in 2023. So you could contribute up to $30,000 into your employer-sponsored plan if you're over 50. Starting in 2025, Secure 2.0 um, is going to increase the catch-up contribution for anyone who is aged either 60 through 63 to $10,000. So our $5,000 catch-up that has been in place for a very long time is now going to go to $10,000 in 2025 if you are age 60 through age 63. And the catch-up amount amount going forward will be indexed for inflation after 2025. So you might be thinking, hey, that sounds pretty good. However, um, if you are considered a high earner, meaning your wages from an employer exceed $145,000 in the previous calendar year, and that $145,000 will be indexed for inflation. But starting next year in 2024, your catch-up contribution will now be forced into a Roth, and it will not be on a pre-tax basis. So you really have to ask yourself, is this something that someone who's defined as a high earner would want to do? Um, because part of the idea is being able to defer that money and not pay taxes on it. Um, okay, so I'm just going to tell you, I did the math on that, right? So they're up in the amount that you can use as a catch-up to $10,000 but then basically taxing you on it where before you could tax, it was going to be a tax deduction, tax deferred. So now at 10000 if you're in a basically combined tax rate of 45%, if you're in California or in New York, it's going to be more than that. The amount you can get into the plan is 6500 So you've actually gone backwards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... The other part of that is, and, and, you know, you mentioned earlier all this legislation that gets passed and regulation, and oftentimes, um, you know, it's passed, but then nobody tells you how to get from A to B. Um, one of the other things that was noted in the secure language, you know, it specifically states wages. 
of 145 that exceed 145,000 in the previous year. So it appears that someone who is self-employed would not fall under that because self-employment income is not actually considered wages. Um, under that same thread, highly compensated partners or highly compensated sole proprietors would also appear to be excluded from the definition. So I'm sure that's really, of course, not how the IRS feels about it, but that's what I've been seeing in sort of the liner notes of, of this act. So first, I have to correct my math. When I did that 10,000 times the 45%, I said 6,500, but that's actually 5,500. So yeah. really, that's quite a bit less. Yeah, that's a haircut. Your, that's a big haircut when that comes in after tax. And your comment about the highly compensated, you know, the, the things, we probably will see regulations on this. But as it stands right now, isn't this incentive for everybody to quit their employments and become independent contractors so that they aren't subject to that limitation? I think I'm going to quit my own law firm and become an independent. You can't actually do that, but <laughs> it's certainly a thought. Well, what about changes to the matching contributions in an employer-sponsored plan? Um, so traditionally, all matching contributions from an employer to an employee were deposited into a traditional pre-tax account. Um, so even if an employee had the option of having a Roth account through their employer, the employer contributions would always go into a traditional pre-tax account. With Secure 2.0, employees can choose now to receive their match as a Roth contribution. However, this Roth match is now going to be treated as if the employee had immediately converted that traditional a match of funds to a Roth. So the employer will still get the benefit of deducting that matching contribution as if it was made into the pre-tax account, but the contribution itself will actually be added to the employee's pay as ordinary income. Um, and as sort of a side note to, the, to that, not only does the employer get to deduct that contribution, um, it is at least still excluded from taxes for FICA calculations. So, um, you know, they you didn't totally get it in the shorts, but still not so great. And some believe strongly in making the Roth IRA contributions, while others, you know, I'm the big tax deferral girl. So, not without really commenting, there's a, just a difference of views. There's a lot of benefits to the Roth. There's a lot of benefits to your traditional deferral strategies. But this is just a difference where it's a little gives a little more flexibility to the employee who might feel one or the other is better for them, but they'll bear, if they elect to make that Roth, have that match be a Roth, there's going to be a tax consequence. And you just, again, have to do the math on that. Right. Absolutely. If you're an employee who's in the lower tax brackets, yeah, do do that or have both. I, I always counsel people about the importance of literally having different buckets of money to draw from, um, meaning some that is taxed and some that is not when you get into retirement. And so having both of those types of retirement accounts gets you to that point. And I think that's a great point because as the one who has learned defer, 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 I would be the first to acknowledge that I've had some clients whose income went up in retirement because they did such a great job accumulating in their retirement accounts. So I think the Ross and the various other options do create opportunities for strategy as you age as well. 
There's a new rule on what we call the surplus 529s. And the 529s, some people have basically overfunded. So they can put money away for their kids or grandkids' college and the child didn't go to college or you just have too much in there. The market was doing great for a while, so you had amounts going up. And so we, that finally got looked at by Congress and Secure Act 2.0 made some changes. Can you describe that? Yeah. So um, while 529 plans do allow the owner of a plan to change the beneficiary, so say you had five grandchildren and, you know, that very last grandchild was considerably younger than the first four and across the four um, other grandchildren's account, there was money left over and and they probably weren't going to use it for college. You could always uh, basically change the beneficiary on those other four accounts to that youngest grandchild. So that money was not like a use it or lose it kind of thing. Um, owners of accounts always have had the option as well um, to take that money back out and just pay tax on the gains that were accumulated. But this new change is really nice because, you know, most people who fund a 529 really are making a gift to that beneficiary and intend for them to have the use of that money. And so if you have a beneficiary who, let's say, is finished with their their higher education and didn't use all the money or maybe just wasn't one of those children who was cut out for college. Maybe they're an entrepreneur or something like that, and there's money sitting in this 529 plan. Um, Beneficiaries now have the option to roll over up to $35,000 over the course of their lifetime into a Roth IRA. Um, Now, there are some caveats. Rollovers are subject to the annual Roth contribution limits, so that'd be like $6,500 this year, unless you're over 50, Um, that 529 plan has to have been open for 15 or more years before you can roll money out. Um, And probably the other thing to really note is that I said it's the beneficiary who can roll that money out. It is not the account owner. So the account owner cannot roll that money out into their Roth The only way that would work is, say, if the account owner was also the beneficiary of the account. And so we have had some people who maybe um, a little bit later in life decided to go back and pursue an education degree, um, or they made themselves the beneficiary on an account after a grandchild or somebody used it because they thought, yeah, I'm going to go get a law degree at 50. Um, Then they could be the beneficiary, and if there was still money left, they could roll it to themselves. But it is very rare for me to find a 529 where the owner of the account is also the beneficiary. Um, The other thing is this only applies to accounts um, and distributions occurring after the end of this year. So it does not apply for any distributions occurring in 2023. You can't start this process until 2024. And I really appreciate that you shared the other options, for example, being able to change the beneficiary. I've got a lot of clients who have funded all of their grandchildren's to an excess. And so that's not always necessarily an option, but certainly in some cases is, and they can change the beneficiary to you know, whoever, really. So that's one option. And then being able to take it out and you just pay tax on the gain. Because literally the 35000 is 
it's nice and it's a step, but it's it's a somewhat ungenerous amount to right. allow for the rollover. So I thought it was important that we named that you identified the various strategies that can be used. And Mike Weaver and I did a detailed dive on a separate episode into qualified charitable distributions. But because that change was also part of Secure Act 2.0, and I wanted to talk about the entirety of Secure Act 2.0 and the changes today to be complete, can you speak a little bit, too, about what changed for the qualified charitable distributions? Tell us a little bit about what it is and what happened with that. Yeah, you know, let me say I love that we have a qualified charitable distribution option. Um, a few years ago, it was one of those things that Congress put in place and then it would expire at the end of the year. And, um, you know, then there would be discussion, well, should we allow that again? Can people make qualified charitable distributions for their IRAs? You know, is that legislation going to be extended? And so finally, with with the original, um, I believe, Secure Act, that was put in place permanently. So with a qualified charitable distribution, um, any person who is here we go with that 70 and a half again. I wish they would just pick a round number. Any person who is 70 and a half or older can give up to $100,000 a year to a qualified charity or charities from their IRA. And so, again, this is a great way to avoid recognition of income um, rather than taking it yourself recognizing that income and then writing a check to the charity. You just have to have it so that the money goes directly from your IRA to the charity. Secure 2.0 added a provision um, for indexing this $100,000 amount. So now in 2024, that $100,000 figure will be indexed for inflation. And in addition, any individual who is 70 and a half or older can make a one-time QCD of up to $50,000, and this number will also be indexed for inflation, to a charity through um, one of three vehicles, a charitable gift annuity, a charitable remainder trust, or a charitable annuity trust. Um, and these charitable vehicles are nice because you can set them up so that they pay an income stream over a period of years to the grantor and potentially the grantor's spouse, depending on how you set it up. Um, however, it's important to note that this is truly a one-time gift. It's not once, you know, every year. It is one gift of $50,000 during your lifetime. Um, and that $50,000 is included in the annual $100,000 QCD amount. So if you decide in 2025 you're going to, you know, give $50,000 or put $50,000 to a charitable gift annuity, then you only have $50,000 left in that tax year to do a QCD with. Um, it is possible for a husband and wife to each gift, say, $50,000 into one of these charitable vehicles. Uh, for a total of $100,000. But again, this is a one and done opportunity. And that gift counts towards the $100,000 annual limit. And I think that like that was a brief summary and really does merit a deeper dive into the charitable strategies with IRAs. But I like you really like seeing those. So many people today are not exposed to the current estate tax limits that could change in a couple years. Who knows? <laughs> Regardless, I have a lot of clients who like to do charitable gifts, and it's nice, especially with the changes we have had, 
that we have some strategies that can use that do reduce income tax and actually encourage this type of, you know, charitable gifts. And this is one great strategy. Do you have any last thoughts today, Stacey? Um, you know, I would just say one thing on those QCDs. We always encourage clients because we have a lot of charitable clients that once you reach 70 and a half, um, and particularly if you're in that RMD age, all of your charitable gifting um, should come from your IRAs. Um, a lot of people, you know, think, oh, I'll just still write a check, but most people aren't itemizing on their taxes anymore. And so always look first to your, like your IRA to give from when you're, when you've reached that magic age. Um, other than that, you know, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to come and, and talk about the secure act 2.0. Um, who knows, we could be sitting here in two more years talking about secure two and a half or three, um, or six months from now talking <laughs> about the new regulations affecting the owners that aren't cur currently covered. But yeah, thanks very much, Stacey. I really appreciate your expertise on this topic and that you joined me again today. As we reach the end of our episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, and Carson Private Client. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.